Please take your Bible and turn to Luke 17 this morning. So good to see all of you. Appreciate your faithful ministry to one another by being here today. And so thankful for uh, Nathan's scripture reading, for Eddie's leadership, just through keeping everything put together in the back, and also through leading us in the Nicene Creed, and uh, for Clayton's leadership in choosing the songs and leading us so well in them. We needed to be reminded together today of the fact that the kingdom of God will never fail, as our first song told us. We need to be reminded today that Christ appears before the Father for us, as our second song told us. And we need to be reminded today that Christ has made an end to our sin through His sacrifice on the cross. Praise God for all these truths we've been able to uh, celebrate together and send, send resounding into each other's hearts and into our, uh, into our homes as we go our way today. But today we're in Luke chapter 17, and if you're not familiar with uh, how to find Luke, you could probably lean over to the person next to you and they can show you where Luke 17 would be in your Bible. And I'll be preaching today from verses 20 through 37. Please follow along as I read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Whatever translation you have is great. Uh, I'll be reading verses 20 through 37. <clears throat> Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. On Wednesday evening of this past week, I was watching Game 4 of the Baseball World Series with a couple of friends uh, while we were at a meeting in southern Illinois. And uh, during the game, just before one of the innings, baseball took a pause from the excitement of the World Series and drew our collective attention, the attention of everyone in that stadium and the attention of the millions of people who were watching it, to the reality that cancer is a deadly disease that is uh, ruining lives. And so what they did is, uh, it's become something of a tradition with the World Series over the last 10 or 11 years or so, uh, and they call it Stand Up to Cancer. And it's about joining efforts and resources to try to find a cure for cancer. 
And so the players and umpires and broadcasters and 50,000 fans in Philadelphia and everyone else, everyone together in, in the building, including the first lady, uh, Mrs. Biden was there, held, uh, held up signs that they had written on with a Sharpie with the name of someone they loved or knew who either has cancer, had cancer and, and successfully defeated it or you know, survived it, or died of cancer. And so everyone in the building is holding up these, these placards, these nameplates that say, stand up to cancer, I stand up for, and then they fill in the blank, for my mom or for my friend so-and-so, and, and on and on. Uh, as someone who has had cancer, as someone whose dad died of cancer, as someone whose mom has had cancer, I hate cancer. Last night, one of my friends was buried because he died of cancer. A year and a half ago, I drove to one of my best friends in the world's funerals in New York because he died of cancer. Cancer stinks, and it ruins lives, and it ruins homes, and it ruins churches. And as I uh, and my friends and I watched that demonstration on Wednesday evening, that, that sense of solidarity that those 50 or so thousand people had in that stadium in Philadelphia, I was struck by the fact that all those people together could express their own experience with cancer, either personally or in the, the life of someone that they loved. I was watching it with, with Nathan Carter, who's one of our uh, closest, the pastor of one of our closest sister churches down in the city, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And uh, he was watching it, and he goes, is this real? Like, surely this could not be happening right now because of just how serious everyone that they showed was. I mean, no one was cracking a smile. There were tears in people's eyes. You had people standing there holding up names of people they loved for about two minutes, and just the, the, the camera panning slowly across the faces of the umpires and the players, some of them who were holding up names of other players who have died of cancer recently. It was a very serious, somber moment. And what it expressed to me was that we all long for a world that is free of the dangers that this world is full of. We all long for a world that's cancer-free. We all long for a world that's COVID-free, that's heart disease-free, that's broken limb-free. Whatever you want to say, we long for a world that's full of joy and peace and prosperity and hope and love. And what those people were holding up was the reality that we're not in that world. We're in a world that's broken and fallen and marred and full of cancer, as one example. People long for a world where there is no more sickness and where there is no more death. And that place is what the Bible calls by a lot of names. Sometimes we just call it heaven. Sometimes we call it the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes we call it being in the land, the promised land. And sometimes the Bible calls it the kingdom of God. And that's what the Bible calls it in our passage today. In this passage, Jesus is answering questions about the kingdom. And this message tells us that Jesus' followers submit to Christ's rule and prepare for Christ's return. Those who are going to follow Jesus with their lives, submit to his rule, bow the knee to him alone, and prepare for his return. That's the message of our passage today, Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Jesus' followers submit to his rule and prepare for his return. And this passage neatly divides into those two sections of what I just described. Verses 20 through 21 tell us to submit to his rule, submit to the rule of Christ. 
being asked by the Pharisees, which is interesting that they're the ones asking this question, when the kingdom of God would come, he gives a surprising answer, right? They're expecting like a specific timeline is what it sounds like. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to give you a timeline. The kingdom is already here. So let's unpack that a little bit. Our text only makes sense. Verses 20 through 37 only makes sense if you understand an important theological concept, or at least you can get your arms loosely around a concept that theologians refer to as the already and the not yet, or the now and the still to come. So maybe we can put it this way. Uh, Maybe when you plant a garden in the spring, you put the seeds in the ground, and someone says to you, do you have a garden this year? What's the correct answer? You've just put the seeds in the ground, but nothing's sprouting up yet. I should have added that. Do you have a garden? Kinda. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a garden. There's seeds in the ground. And could you also say, no, I don't have a garden? Yeah, you could say that because there's nothing in there. It's a plot of dirt. So, yeah, there's the now. There's the garden that's full of seeds. And there's the not yet, which is what comes later. And the garden comes to fruition and you see the vegetables or the fruits growing. And now, yeah, now I, now I see it in its fullness. Uh, I thought of this one. The White Sox named a manager this year, or this, this past week. Pedro Griffal or something like that. Is he the White Sox manager? Yeah, we could say that. But they don't play till April. So is he kind of not their man- It seems to me like he's not quite manager until he puts on the uniform and goes out and hands in the lineup card on opening day. That's kind of when he officially becomes manager, in my mind. Maybe that's not a good example. All that to say that the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is already here. That's how Jesus answers, when's the kingdom coming? And again, I want to unpack why they're even asking that question, what they're looking for. But is the kingdom now? Yeah. Jesus says, I'm here. I represent that the fact, the fact that the kingdom has already come, in what ways has it already come? Well, what does the Old Testament tell us that the kingdom of God's going to be like? It's going to be a place where the lame start walking, where lepers are healed, where the blind can see, where evil spirits are cast out. Has Jesus done all of that? Yeah, and a lot more up through these first 17 chapters. The kingdom is already here. But then when you look down through verses 22 through 37, you're like, yeah, it's not here yet. This is not what has happened. The Son of Man has not come back yet. And so in a very real sense, the kingdom is already here through the person of Christ and now through the presence of the Spirit in our lives, but it's also not here yet. The now and the not yet, the already and the not yet. You can look at it a couple of different ways. But the bottom line was the Pharisees were saying, when are all the Old Testament promises going to be completed, going to be fulfilled. And that's what they're wondering about. For instance, when will the throne of David have a man seated on it who is perfect? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm here. I am the king living in God's kingdom. When will the seed of the woman crush the seed of the serpent? From Genesis 3, Jesus says, I'm here to do that. When will there be peace and tranquility? I'm here to establish that. But again, we get to the not yet part. Like You're holding up a sign that says, I love someone who just died of cancer. We're not living in a world that's full of peace and tranquility. We're not there yet. So what Jesus is doing is saying, all the Old Testament promises that God's people have been looking for for thousands of years are rooted in Christ. He is the King. 
And he's the one who brings all these to pass. The Pharisees are the ones asking this question, and I'm curious why they're asking that question. We've seen them try to trick Jesus multiple times, try to get him to say something that's going to make him look bad. It never happened. He couldn't say something that made him look bad. So they killed him because they were sick and tired of these answers. That was part of it anyway. It was possible that they were asking a genuine question. Maybe some of these were, were some of the better Pharisees who maybe were thinking, this is our chance to find out when this kingdom is going to actually come, when God's promises are all going to be fulfilled. We don't really know what this uh, question uh, was spurred on by, but we do appreciate Jesus' wisdom in answering that this is not going to come in a way that can be observed. Like you're going to look at the sky and say, oh yeah, this is the clear sign that God's kingdom has come back. No one's going to be pointing around saying, look, here's the kingdom, or there, there's the kingdom, because the kingdom is in the midst of you. Now, what do you think it means that the kingdom is in your midst? I've already kind of alluded to it over and over again. It's the fact that Christ himself is, is the kingdom, essentially, is the king in the kingdom. And so by his presence, by him being among them, they were already living in the kingdom of God. They were living under the rule of God. When we think of the kingdom of God, this is what you need to think of. God's people living in God's place under God's rule for God's glory. So you have the people of God in our day, that's Christians, right? Living under the rule of God. We're going to talk a lot about how we help each other to live better under the rule of God. In God's place, for now, this is God's place, in a sense, the world that we live in. But we also know there's a better place, the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, all these phrases that are straight out of the Bible. For God's glory. That's what it means to live in God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying that's already happening now. And so we need to submit to His rule. The kingdom is present in our day through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. As it was in Jesus' day, He started, He brought in the kingdom. It was already there by the fact that He was present with them. As from, from His incarnation on, the kingdom of God came. And so what should we do in response to this? Submit to His rule. Bow to Him. Let Him rule your life. Make every decision that you make, big or small, in light of the fact that Christ is ruling over all things. Secondly, this is super generic, but be happy in God. That's why you're alive. is so that you can find your satisfaction in Him alone. If there's anybody in our day who has helped Christians see the beauty of God and the glory of living under His rule. It would, I would say it's John Piper and his aim that he helps to, to help people live under the supremacy of Christ and simply find their delight in Him. We say God, uh, John Piper would say, if you want to read what anything John Piper says, it's summarized in this sentence. All his books say the same thing. It's right here. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. That is going to be his legacy that he dies with whenever he dies. He's a very old man, but praise God, he continues to to minister well in a variety of ways. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. So find your joy in God. Be happy in God rather than in your circumstances or in something changing in your life. Submit to the rule of Christ. Jesus' followers, submit to his rule. And secondly, prepare for his return. That's verses 22 through 37. And this passage tells us about the not yet. We just talked about the already. We're already living in the kingdom of God. The rest of this passage tells us about what's not true yet. And it's going to be abundantly obvious to you that this is not true yet. 
Prepare for the return of Christ. The future kingdom, verses 22 and 23 tell us, will come in God's time. The future kingdom will come in God's time. One of the disciples now, so it's not the Pharisees asking this question. or I'm sorry, it's not even a question here in this case. They ask other questions later. Here it's just Jesus turning to the disciples, addressing them, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God will come in God's time. This idea that that they will desire to see one of the days is the sense that uh, I believe Jesus is addressing those people right there, his disciples, Matthew, uh, Peter, all all these other disciples, and he's telling them, I'm not going to come back until you're already dead. I think that's what he means there by the fact that you will desire to see them and you will not see it. You're already going to be gone by that time. But this phrase, the Son of Man, and perhaps in your Bible as it is in mine, both Son and Man are capitalized. It does that to tell you that it's referring to a specific person. And it's a person rooted in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read those words because we sang some of those words earlier today. So give me just a moment as I go to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. You can write these down in your notes if you're taking notes and read it again later. But here Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given, which means that God gave. God, it's a a divine passive there. God the Father gave to this son of man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We said in the Nicene Creed, his kingdom is forever. We sing in a mighty fortress is our God. His kingdom is forever. We sing, rejoice the Lord is king. His kingdom is forever. Where are those songs getting that truth from Daniel 7, 13 and 14? And when Jesus says, that the Son of Man will return, He's referring to Himself. He's saying, I am that One fulfilling the expectation of Daniel 7. Which is a way of saying, I am the King in God's kingdom. Verse 23, again, God's kingdom comes in His time. Verse 23 says, people will tell you, oh look, here's the kingdom. Hey look, there's the kingdom. Don't go out and follow them. What's Jesus saying by don't go out and follow them? Refuse to listen to false teachers about the return of Christ. We talked in Sunday school about a few names of people who have identified themselves by their teaching as being false teachers, making ridiculous predictions. And in their case, they're not even predictions. They're just straight up facts about when Jesus is going to return. And they've always been wrong. So stop listening to people who tell you when Jesus is going to come back. Submit to His rule. That's what you should do. And prepare for His return, but that doesn't mean get your calendar out. It means get your Bible out and follow Christ as a disciple of Jesus. So don't listen to false teachers. The kingdom of God will come in God's time. Verse 24 says the kingdom of God will be obvious when it comes. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes... Perhaps on Friday you guys were sitting in your office or in your home or in your car and a huge storm blew in and there was a lot of lightning in that storm. You didn't have to 
ask, is there a storm going on today? It was very loud, at least in our neighborhood. It will be obvious, just like when lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. You will not have to ask, has Jesus come back yet? It will be obvious He has come back when the Son of Man comes in His day. Third, the kingdom of God will follow suffering. That's what verse 25 teaches us. First, before the Son of Man comes in His day, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Again, he's saying this to a specific group of people 2,000 years ago. What's it mean that the Son of Man has to suffer? His disciples had no idea. He had already told them. He had said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem so that I can die for sins. That was in 951, Luke 951. A couple times since then we've seen while heading to Jerusalem. He's on a mission to go there to die. That's what it means he has to, be suffer, to, to suffer. That's what it means he has to be rejected by this generation, by the people who were living in that day. But what's shocking is that he continues to be rejected in this day. The suffering was a point-in-time moment. The rejection was, in a sense, a point-in-time moment, but it continues today. And perhaps you're one of those people who is rejecting them. Perhaps you love someone who is rejecting Christ. And let me just tell you, as this passage is going to make super crystal clear to you, You do not want to be on the side of those who reject Him. This is God's warning to you. This is God's love, loving appeal to you to submit to Him as the King of the world. The kingdom will follow suffering. It's going to follow Christ's suffering, but it's also going to follow your suffering. Did you know that the Bible makes it very clear that all those who follow Christ Jesus will suffer persecution? And so... Maybe if you're going to live in a certain part of the world, it's going to mean, as Clayton referred to in the pastoral prayer, it's going to be very hard to have worship services. That may be the persecution. That may be the suffering that you endure now. But don't get the cart in front of the horse and expect the glory now. The glory that the Bible tells us about is for the later, for the not yet part of God's kingdom. And this truly is where prosperity preachers, uh, false teachers of the health and wealth prosperity gospel get off is they forget that there is the not yet part. That's where they get off track. Like they're not sure how to work everything out. So they assume that the glory, that the, that are the promises of the new covenant, that that glory is for right now. No, the glory is for later. We live in the time of suffering now. Just like Christ has been glorified, has gone on to heaven as we celebrated His ascension in various songs we sang today as well. And in the Nicene Creed, He is in heaven. He is glorified now but he suffered first. And that's what verse 25 is telling us. And if you are here and you're not in Christ, this passage is beautiful. And it tells you, repent today. Let this one who suffered and was rejected be your king. Call him your king. Own him as your king as you bow your heart before him in repentance and faith. So just to recap, what I'm talking about here is that we as God's people, those who follow Jesus, prepare for his return. And I've said three things so far about that return, three truths about it. One, it's going to come in God's time. Two, it's going to be obvious. Three, it's going to follow suffering. And now fourth, in verses 26 through 30, the kingdom will catch many people off guard. When Christ returns, it's going to catch many people off guard. Verses 26 through 30 tell us this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Again, when Christ returns, it'll be like in the days of Noah. 
What was that time like? That's what verse 27 tells us. What were they doing when Noah built a boat and got in it and rain started falling? They were eating, drinking, getting married, doing normal life things is what verse 27 tells us. And then they were caught off guard. It was unexpected to them. Same thing, same truth in verse 28. Likewise, going back to verse 26, just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days when Christ returns, days of the Son of Man. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were doing normal human things. They were eating, drinking, planting, building. They were doing normal life things. If Jesus returned today, we would say, and we talked about this in Sunday school as well, we would say people were playing fantasy football, eating lunch, going to Target, checking Facebook. They were doing normal human things. And it caught them off guard because they were going about their business as if this life were all there was, is all there is. Just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot. Do you know why those stories are in the Bible? To give us a microcosm of what's going to happen when Jesus returns and His glory fills the whole earth, but His judgment does too. You do not want to be caught off guard. You do not want to be unprepared. So flee the wrath to come, to use Jesus' language in Luke 3. Or I believe it was John the Baptist's language in Luke 3. Do not be caught off guard. Do not be unprepared. Repent and believe today. Fifth, the kingdom of God demands your wholehearted love. That's how I'm summarizing verses 31 through 33. The kingdom of God, the return of Christ, is another way we could say that, demands your wholehearted love. On that day in verse 31, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Forget your goods. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Don't idolize this present world. Don't be so concerned with keeping all you can keep in this life that on the day when Christ returns, you just think, oh, my stuff, my car, my super cool house, my phone, my toys. Forget it. Be prepared now is what verses 31 through 33 are telling you. Maybe one way to think of this is on 9-11, were people in the Pentagon running back into the Pentagon to get their bag of lunch? Did anybody run upstairs in the World Trade Center to get their laptop or that super important portfolio? I haven't talked to anybody who is in either one of those buildings, but I guarantee you no one ran back in to get their lunch or their laptop because they knew it was time to go. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're out in the field when Christ returns, it's not the time to say, oh, I just love all my stuff. No, that's the time to be ready. And now is the day to get ready for that day. Prepare for His return, which demands your wholehearted love. Don't idolize this present world. Make preparations for the next world. The return of Christ, the kingdom of God, is not arbitrary. Verses 34 through 35. The kingdom of God is not arbitrary. Let me read these verses here. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. 
There will be two women grinding grain together. They're at a mill. We talked about a millstone in last week's passage. We've got two women sitting there grinding out berries of wheat to make flour. Grinding out corn to make cornmeal. There's two of them there. One of them's taken. One of them's left. And what I'm saying is this passage is not arbitrary. Jesus is not saying, "Mm, I'll take that one and this one. No, it's crystal clear what Jesus means by this. Those who have been rebelling will be judged. Those who have been repenting will be saved. There's judgment. There's salvation. It's not arbitrary. The kingdom of God is not arbitrary. Now, perhaps you're looking at your text, and here in the ESV, you notice that there's verse 35, and the next verse is verse 37. If you have another translation, perhaps you look at that and you say, no, I have verse 34, verse 35, verse 36, verse 37. In my copy of the Bible, you can look down at a footnote, and again, I realize there are different copies of the Bible, so maybe you have a different footnote, maybe you have no footnote. A couple different things we can say here. Uh, my footnote here says some manuscripts add verse 36. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Where would the uh, translators of the Bible get that phrase from about the two men who will be in the field? One will be taken and the other left. They would get it from Matthew 24, which is the parallel passage in Matthew to this passage. And so it was as if the translators are sitting there going, oh yeah, That was in that other passage. That should be here too. Why isn't it in our manuscripts? And it kind of got from one manuscript to another, but maybe it shouldn't have been there. Does it particularly matter if it's there or not? Not particularly, because we know it is the Bible verse in Matthew 24. We know that God said this, that Jesus said this. But all we're trying to have is the words that that Luke was trying to write down here. It's very possible that Luke uh, 1736 should just be long over in Matthew 24, about verse 40 or so. Either way, it's here in our footnotes, either way, it's saying the same message. It's just one third way of saying there's going to be one who's taken and one who's left, and it's not arbitrary. Those who are rebels are judged. Those who repent are saved. In verse 37, the kingdom of God will be obvious. Verse 37, the kingdom of God will be obvious. They said to him, the disciples said to him, where, Lord, where will your kingdom come, is what they're asking. Where will it be so we can be in the right place? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, you might say, Eric, you're being repetitive. Verse 24 said, it will be obvious. Yes, I know. So both of these verses, verse 24 and verse 37, are saying, when Jesus returns, you're going to know it's happened. How will you know that it's happened in verse 37? Because there will be people who are judged, who are dead, and there are vultures circling around. If you see vultures, you know there's something dead. You know that Jesus has returned, is what Jesus is saying here. And so the question we need to answer then is, is it better to be left behind or is it better to be taken? And what we want to do is read, is answer that question on the basis of this passage while also keeping in mind a variety of other passages. Let's just let this passage say what it says, and then we can read other passages and let those passages say what they say. But my argument, and I'm happy to argue with you as well afterwards, uh, is that you want to be left behind. That might sound super strange because of that stack of books this wide, if you have them all, about being left behind. In this passage, those who are taken are those who are judged. And where am I getting that from? Verse 27, the flood came and destroyed them all. Keeping in mind um, 
Matthew, the Matthew 24 parallel passage, it says, the flood came and swept them away, which sounds a lot like being taken away in judgment. The story of Lot. On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. They were taken away in judgment. You want to be Noah. You want to be Lot, which means you're left behind after the judgment. How was Noah left behind? He was in an ark being saved. How was Lot left behind? He got out of town. Who didn't? His wife. And she was judged for it. Remember, Lot's wife is just a way of saying, get out, prepare yourself while there's time. Stop messing around eating and drinking and getting married and building and planting. Do what you're supposed to do now. Get ready now so you're not taken away in judgment. You want to be left behind, which means you want to be saved by the blood of Christ. Here's a parallel passage. The Exodus. Who was left behind? Those who had the blood on the door. Who was taken away? Those who had no blood on the door, which is saying, we're going to stand on our own merits. Thank you very much. And they were the ones who died. You want to be spared. The way to be spared is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So let's think through some applications of this passage, what it looks like to live as God's people in God's place under God's rule for God's glory. One thing I would say is that in light of God's kingdom, fear about the future turns to confidence. Whatever it is that makes you nervous, that makes your stomach kind of clench up a little bit, that makes you lose sleep, that makes you go back and check your investment accounts again, that makes you go back and see your doctor again, whatever it is, in light of God's kingdom, fear turns to confidence. Anger turns to peace. Again, I appreciated Clayton's pastoral prayer so much. We as Christians need to think differently about the political process and about the results of the political process in our land than non-Christians do. Our hope is not in this present world. It is in the kingdom of God that is not yet fully here. We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of the U.S. first and foremost. Praise God for our citizenship in this country and all that that entails. But on the last day, there's one place you want to be a citizen of, and it's not this country. You want to be a citizen of heaven. And so live in light of the two kingdoms. That Yes, we live right now in this place, but it will not last forever. We did not sing today on purpose. This, eternal, or this earthly American kingdom will last forever. We did not sing that. We sang Christ's kingdom will last forever. So make your citizenship there the one that matters the most to you. And that will make you the best citizen of America you could be. You're a better citizen of America when you realize your citizenship is first and foremost in the city of God. God's people. Here's several thoughts about this. We need to be clear. If we're going to know who the people of God are, we need to be clear on what conversion is, what it means to become a Christian. It happens through repentance and faith. Full stop. And we need to be clear on that so that we can have a clear understanding of evangelism, how we tell people the message. We're not selling a product. We're offering people the free gift of God that He has freely offered to us and saying, if you do not repent, you are the enemy of God and you will be judged for that. You have to back up big time to believe that that message is true. 
in the sense that most people are doing the Noah and Lot's day type of things. Eating, drinking, working on their cars, watching football. And it's just a foreign concept that there's another world that you need to be ready for. That there is an eternal God that you are accountable to. That is simply what the Bible teaches. Finally, with regard to the people of God, we need to be clear on what it means to be a church member because we need each other. We need to be in each other's lives. Maybe we could say we need to be in each other's business to help us remember the kingdom we live in and the kingdom yet to come to completion. What's it like to live under God's rules? We talked about the people of God living under the rule of God in God's kingdom. This means that we obey Him, that we pursue holiness that we have one another relationships and one another service. We don't have a super formal discipleship program here at Brainerd, but we do try to disciple one another through a wide variety of word-centered means, and discipleship is about helping people live under the rule of God in God's kingdom. I've already talked about God's place, that this world is not the completed kingdom. We look forward to the day when we are in God's perfect place, the new kingdom, but we are living for His glory. That means that life is about Him. So we are God's people living under God's rule in God's place for God's glory. Everything we do then, everything we pursue, everything we believe, everything we engage in is dictated by His Word. And we seek to weed out all that does not honor His name. Sometimes all we can do to glorify God today is do your job. For those of you who are students, that means you do your homework. For those of you who are employees, that means you show up and you work. For those of you who are employers, it means you give your employees the best experience they could possibly have in that workplace. And you seek to glorify God by doing your job today. If you are retired, it means that you go about the business of your day saying, this is my task for today. I'm going to do this to the glory of God, whatever that task may be. It may mean washing the dishes again. It might mean changing your grandchild's diaper again. But you do your job for the glory of God. I've heard from many people recently how hard it is to find good employees. Uh, Somebody in South Carolina told me that on a Sunday two weeks ago today, uh, they had 14 people signed up to work at JCPenney on a particular Sunday, and seven of them showed up. And the other seven just didn't show up. It wasn't even like a, I'm sick, or I'm going to a NASCAR race. It was crickets. Half the people didn't show up. And I have talked to multiple people who hire people, and they say, yeah, that's actually normal right now. We are happy if we get people who know how to work. And this is where we as Christians have to show up and glorify God by doing our job and not being accused of being a lazy bum or just not caring. That is not glorifying to God. So the next best thing you can do, the next thing you can do is whatever it means to follow Christ right now, to put the next foot in front of the other and glorify God. Two weeks ago, we saw that God's judgment is a problem worse than poverty. You do not If you have to pick between the two, I'm going to be poor my whole life, like the man named Lazarus, or I'm going to face the judgment of God. You pick poverty 100 out of 100 times. Last week we saw it's better to have leprosy than to face the judgment of God. That sounds like a bad problem. Leprosy is going to kill you. 
It's better to have leprosy than the judgment of God. Today, we see that there is a worse problem than cataclysmic disasters, like in Noah's day and in Lot's day. That was bad. You did not want to be in Sodom on the day when God rained down sulfur and fire in judgment. But if you have to pick the temporal cataclysmic disaster like a tsunami or a hurricane or a tornado, pick that over the judgment of God. That's how super serious the kingdom of God is. We want to be prepared for it. Those who follow Jesus live under his rule and prepare for his return. I don't know if in our lifetime or if before Christ returns, stand up to cancer will accomplish its stated goal, which is finding a cure for cancer. I absolutely hope they do. That would be wonderful. But I do know that cancer will have no part in the final kingdom. That's where you want to be. You want to be in the place where the curse is gone. There is no more sin. There is no more suffering. There is no more death because you live in God's place, under God's rule, with God's people, for God's glory forever. Our Father, may you take these words and cause them to bear fruit in our lives. May we stand up to the seriousness of this passage and listen with attentive ears to what you have said May you give us repentant hearts for the ways in which we go about our daily lives without concern for the fact that you are our king and that your kingdom is eternal. May you adjust our eyes to see this truth by faith today. In Christ's name, amen.